Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Extreme evidence, videos of violence will dominate day two of Trump's impeachment trial. Twitter turbulence, revenues fly as headwinds blow from India and the United States. And dose delays, the EU admits its vaccine plans were too late and too optimistic. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Thank you for joining us. As always, we've got the latest on the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump coming up. Plus, a special focus on the Federal Reserve today. Mary Daly, the president and CEO of the San Francisco Fed, a voting member this year, will join us for an exclusive interview this hour. Like us, policymakers, of course, closely watching Congress and what they can pass in terms of new financial aid and stimulus. It continues to fuel the debate, too, over the so-called K-shaped recovery, frothiness in financial markets and whether economic reflation could finally lead to inflation and, of course, then how the Fed should act. Well, Daly has made her position clear. The Fed must not pull back on aid too soon. The rich getting richer isn't a reason to stop helping those that need it most. Yet she also says inequity has cost the U.S. economy $70 trillion in lost output over the last three decades. We'll discuss a fix going forward. For now, though, U.S. stocks do sit near records. The Nasdaq set to hit fresh highs in early trade. Europe, well, that was a mixed performance, though Asia has managed to hold in the green. Chinese investors showing optimism ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday. No holidaymakers, meanwhile, for lawmakers in D.C. It's Biden cabinet hearings in the AM. It's impeachment in the PM. And that's where we start the drivers. The U.S. Senate will be hearing evidence today in the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. Lauren Fox has all the details. House prosecutors will present their case against former President Trump today, explaining why they believe he should be convicted of inciting the insurrection at the Capitol last month. They will have up to 16 hours over the next two days to do so. And without Trump as a witness, they are expected to rely heavily on video evidence. Our case is based on cold, hard facts. It's all about the facts. House managers immediately presenting a chilling preview of their strategy on the first day of the trial. Playing a video highlighting some of Trump's words from January 6th. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And the deadly storming of the Capitol that followed. The clip showing rioters breaking into the building and attacking police officers in the rampage. People died that day. Officers ended up with 
head damage and brain damage. The officer lost three fingers that day. Two officers have taken their own lives. A grim reminder to Senate jurors, most of whom were inside that chamber on the day of the insurrection. You ask what a high crime and misdemeanor is under our Constitution? That's a high crime and misdemeanor. If that's not an impeachable offense, then there is no such thing. The 13-minute video, just a small recap of the terrifying footage from the riot. What we experienced that day what our country experienced that day is the framers' worst nightmare come to life. Presidents can't inflame insurrection in their final weeks and then walk away like nothing happened. Tuesday's debate before the Senate voted on whether the impeachment trial is constitutional. Trump's legal team arguing he cannot be convicted because he's no longer in office. The majority in the House of Representatives does not want to face Donald Trump as a political rival in the future. That's the real reason we're here. Six GOP senators ultimately joining Democrats to vote the impeachment trial is constitutional. Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy becoming the only Republican to switch his vote on the constitutionality of the trial. The House managers made a compelling, cogent case, and the president's team did not. And with the Senate Democrats needing 17 Republican votes to convict Trump, some hope that being witnesses to the attack will make this impeachment trial different than the first. We happen to be meeting at the crime scene. We are in the Capitol. We don't have to prove it up, as they say in a courtroom. It's been proved up to each, sing- each and every one of us as individuals. John Harwood joins us now. John, great to have you with us. It's days and days later, and I still find that video incredibly hard to watch. Um, I just want to take us back to what we saw yesterday, because there was a stark contrast between the impeachment managers, the prosecution in this case, and the legal defense for President Trump, who seemed um, moved, flustered, ill-prepared. Well, that's exactly right. And the reason is that they have no case. Uh, The uh, argument that the House managers put on as Senator Cassidy of Louisiana, the one Republican who changed his vote, uh, was cogent, was logical. It mixed emotion and facts and reason. And in response, you got from the president's lawyers who were just hired uh, a week or so ago because other lawyers uh, would not stay with President Trump He's had a a terrible time getting competent lawyers on his team. One of them just meandered and flattered the senators and talked about how great they were, presumably as a way of uh, flattering them into supporting his client. The other one was angry, was claiming that uh, what Democrats are trying to do is to disenfranchise Trump's voters, which is ridiculous since uh, President Trump himself was actively fomenting an attempt to uh, disenfranchise the votes of the people who elected Joe Biden. Uh, So their material is weak. Uh, The facts are weak for them. The law is weak for them. Uh, And that's why we saw the result they had. On the other hand, the jury pool is very strong for Donald Trump. And that's because there's 50 Republican senators. You need 17 of them to vote to convict. And there is no sign that there are 17 who are willing to do that. You had five on the first vote saying, don't have a trial. It's unconstitutional. Uh, uh, Yesterday, there were only Um, uh, there there were six Republicans instead of five who said, no, it is 
uh, constitutional. So there was some movement, but there's no sign there's going to be movement from 6 to 17. We will see uh, once the case is presented over the next couple of days. And this is the key, John, and I think we have to keep an eye on this, certainly for, for international viewers. This impeachment trial will decide whether or not ultimately Donald Trump can hold public office again. If he's acquitted, he can. We don't know what happens between now and the future. But what you're saying is, despite the fact that Senator Cassidy and we saw him there decided in the space of a week to say this impeachment trial isn't constitutional. Yesterday, he decided, OK, I think based on what I saw, it is. We're still looking like Donald Trump will be acquitted here. He will be acquitted. Uh, and I uh, think it is highly likely that, uh, 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 of course, if he is acquitted, he will not be disqualified from future office. But I do think it's important for our international viewers to know that the chance of Donald Trump ever holding office again is vanishingly small. Uh, he has been a very discredited political figure, yes. He has a grip on a substantial portion of the Republican base, intense following among those Republicans. But you've got uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of Republicans who say he should be convicted in this trial. He should have been impeached. You take away 10 percent, 10 to 20 percent of the Republican base, Republicans cannot win an election. So, uh, yes, Donald Trump will likely leave this trial technically, legally able to run for office again. But the odds that he could win another national election almost nil. Yeah. And he's still banned on social media, which is another critical part of uh, how right. he came to power and um, and uh, remains off. John Howard, thank you so much for that. There was a reason I mentioned that, because Twitter shares hitting seven-year highs overnight after fourth quarter earnings beat expectations. Twitter reached 192 million monetizable daily active users in the quarter. That's up 26% from a year ago, though softer than expected. And that's the key here. Brian Fung joins us now with all the details. Brian, good on the financials, but it was a challenging quarter in some regards. It was, although, you know, Twitter did show uh, significant growth here in its um, its user base. Uh, it said it added more daily users in January than the average of the last four Januaries. And that's despite having uh, banned thousands of accounts associated with the QAnon conspiracy theory, uh, despite banning President Trump from its platform. And Twitter is painting this as an international story. It said 80 percent of its audience is outside the United States and um you know, just goes to show how little uh, it says the activity on Twitter is linked to things like news and politics uh, as it happens to dominate Twitter in the United States. Um, you know, on an in earnings call, Twitter also teased plans for a subscription product uh, sometime next year, and it expanded on its vision for the future of content moderation. Um, you know, under this plan, Jack Dorsey, the company's CEO, said users might be able to select from different content ranking algorithms, uh, kind of like in an app store. And that might give users more choice and control about what they see on Twitter. Uh, Twitter did warn that user growth will probably slow a little bit with the waning of the pandemic and as people start getting back outside a little bit more. Um, But for for what we're seeing right now, uh, Twitter is still continuing to add users uh, in January. Uh, Julia? 
you raised two really important points here. The first, if you have a subscription service, you're monetizing in a different way, you're less reliant on advertisers, which is a key part of this too. And then what do you do about content? There's clearly debate over whether the CEO of any social media platform should have the right or the ability to turn off the voice of a president, irrespective of what he's saying. And you raised a great point here too with with what Jack Dorsey said. He said, we're a platform that is much larger obviously much larger than any one topic or any one account. 80%, yes, of our audience is outside the United States. And that is exactly where I want to go now, to the lucrative and large Indian market, Brian, because they're facing some challenges here too over what content is acceptable on the platform, the threat of the suppression of of free speech, and of course, governments and, and regulators. Talk us through what's going on in India. Sure. Well, farmers in India are protesting policies coming from the central government. Uh, And as many of these protesters take to social media, that's created a lot of tensions between Twitter and uh, the Indian government. Uh, Twitter says it's received a number of legal requests and uh, even a notice of noncompliance from the Indian government uh, and, uh, you know, saying that, you know, Twitter must crack, crack down on some of this content. Um, Twitter says it's hidden or removed some of this content, but it believes the legal orders to be actually, uh, you know, not in the spirit of Indian law. And so, uh, you know, the company is going to be continuing to fight that uh, with with the government. And it just, uh, you know, underscores that a lot of the same debates that are playing out in the United States about, you know, Twitter's commitment to free speech versus its commitment to, uh, you know, keeping its platform clear of violence and incitement. Um, you know, a lot of those same debates are also playing out uh, around the world in many contexts. Yes, and the desire of governments to uh, suppress protests, or at least the voice of protests too. It's a fine line to walk for these social media companies, particularly when there's, what, 700 million internet users in India. It's a huge and uh, lucrative, important market for these players. Brian, great job. Thank you so much for that, Brian Fung. All right, so let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Protesters are taking to the streets for the fifth straight day in Myanmar, demanding an end to the military coup and the release of deposed leader Aung San Suu Kyi. Thousands turned out on Yangon, some waving the red flag of Suu Kyi's political party. The party says its headquarters were raided, looted and destroyed by security forces overnight. South Korea has granted conditional approval for AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine, the first to get authorization there. Patients and staff at nursing homes will be the first to get vaccinated starting February 26th. People over the age of 65 will be allowed to get vaccines despite concerns over a relative lack of data showing the vaccine is effective among elderly people. All right, still to come on First Moves, smooth sailing to a global trade recovery in 2021. Well, the CEO of Maersk will give his take and mistakes were made. Europe's mere culpa over vaccines. We've got the details next. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where US stocks look set to rise after Tuesday's pause. That's what we'll call it. The Nasdaq taking aim at a sixth straight record high. Economic recovery sensitive small caps have been big winners too, with the Russell 2000 rising almost 7% just in the past week. Call it 
once again, as we have in the last couple of days, the everything rally with broad participation. Just to add to that, a new poll showing that 28% of American adults bought shares of GameStop and other Reddit names last month. That's over a quarter of US adults. Just let that sink in for a moment. Small survey, just to be clear, but still uh, fascinating to see that kind of participation. Stocks moving higher on growth optimism. US bond yields are giving up gains on continued signs of relatively tame inflation. Consumer prices rising three-tenths of a percent last month due mainly to high gas prices. The core rate remain unchanged and we're seeing a slowdown in service price increases too. Now the US Federal Reserve watches all these data points very closely and of course the negotiations in Washington DC over further financial aid as it plots its way forward for both interest rates and broader monetary policy measures. And who better to discuss this all with than Mary Daly, the President and CEO of the San Francisco Fed and a voting member of the FOMC. President Daly, Mary, fantastic to have you on the show once again. Welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. Great. I want to start by talking about what we're seeing in terms of the negotiations in D.C. over stimulus. There's clearly debate amongst lawmakers, but also outside over what's required here. Is $1.9 billion the right amount in your mind? And if we get that, how will it impact the, the recovery speed? Well, I'd like to step back from a particular number and be data dependent, if you will. What we really need is a bridge that gets everyone through the coronavirus. So when it's behind us, we're in the best position to grow rapidly. And whether that's 1.9 billion or more or less depends incredibly or completely on the coronavirus and COVID. So right now, I'm just glad that Congress is debating building that bridge long enough and making sure that American families and businesses get what they need to get through this. But more is the essential point here and more is required. Right. We need a bridge, and I've said this many times, we need a bridge that's long enough. COVID came to our shores, no fault of anyone's. People are out of work, losing their businesses, and we need to make sure that they're supported so that they're not destitute when COVID's behind us and they're ready to re-engage in economic activity when it's available. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, and I know you're very familiar um, with her, has said that if we do manage to get that kind of size stimulus done, we could recover all jobs lost next year, so 2022. Does that kind of fit with your thinking too? I'm certainly optimistic that if we get the kind of stimulus that we're talking about and we build that bridge that we can re-engage, there'll be a rapid rebound and we'll be able to return the U.S. economy to full employment, to pre-COVID employment levels in a year or two. But it's going to take continued effort. And if we go slower than that, we're going to have to make sure that we leave no one behind because that is the number that that, uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen put forth is we need to recover every job that was lost. And we'll talk about not leaving people behind because I know you feel incredibly passionately about that. But I want to talk to you about some of the challenges. Uh, Much talked about op-ed by former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers pointing out that he thinks this is too big, that there are financial stability risks, risks to the dollar, that the short-term spending versus medium to longer-term spending mix here is wrong. Mary, where do you stand on some of his challenges? So I always appreciate when Larry Summers puts out his views because it helps us all further the debate. But my own sense is that right now the appropriate thing is to build a bridge. And that really is giving people income support, businesses, uh, loans and grants that they need to keep themselves 
you know, whole. And then once we're past this, I really do believe that medium term spending decisions, building infrastructure, creating things that increase the productive capacity of our economy is appropriate. And we should take all of those things on and be serious about considering them. I'm confident Congress is doing that. And I look forward to seeing what they put forth. But build the bridge first, I think, is the a clear message because you've said it a build few times now and, and, and we hear it. COVID, <laughs> if we're not through COVID, then it doesn't matter what we're spending in the medium term. We need to make sure that people are over the, the virus and they have the ability to re-engage. And I just think of the millions of people who have been displaced and we really do need to make sure that they can participate in an inclusive economy. Fix fix the short term first and then we can worry about the uh, medium to longer term. Let's talk about inflation risks too because Bill Dudley, former head of the uh, New York Fed, put out a piece today, four reasons why he's really concerned about inflation risks. One of them was that people are now expecting inflation beyond that corporates have money. People have money thanks to the stimulus and we tend to recover quicker than things like financial crises when we have, and not that we've ever been through this, but this kind of crisis. Mary, your view, inflation risks. So I, yeah, I, I think that right now the inflation risks are, um, those worries that people have, but they haven't materialized. I mean, just think of the the last uh, expansion, 10 years, and we didn't have inflation sustainably up to 2%. So we released our new framework, the Federal Reserve did, the FOMC did, and inflation expectations moved up. And right now they seem very well anchored at our 2% goal. And we've committed to going moderately above 2% for a sustained period in order to on average hit 2%. So I don't have those concerns that we'll have you know rapidly rising inflation that is runaway. But if we should encounter those. We know how to treat high inflation. What we're very much less experienced at is moving inflation up to our 2% target. In the interim, stock markets are hitting highs. People continue to talk about the the K-shaped recovery here, where there are people, as we've discussed, that are struggling. The rich, the really richer are getting richer. Is there any reason that you can see here for that to be a reason to pull back on support, so-called froth, perhaps? in markets. Well, sir. Certainly, we want to think about broader financial stability issues. Those are always topics of discussion. Those are always metrics we look at. But when you look at the broad economy and the broad financial sector, you don't really see a pervasive froth. You see pockets, uh, GameStop being the most recent. You see pockets of these things, but you don't see this in a pervasive way. So, yes, let's continue to monitor this. But I'm personally unwilling to make a trade-off that leave millions of workers out of work in the hopes that I'll take back some uh, gains for a few wealthy individuals. Really, this is about a broad and inclusive economy. And the job, as I see it, for the Federal Reserve is sustainable, healthy growth, full employment, price stability. And that's what we're focusing on. You identified something there very quickly, and then we'll move on. The GameStop froth, and we'll now call it that because you did. Let's throw in some of the enthusiasm that we're seeing in digital assets, perhaps like Bitcoin as well. Do you see any role here for the Federal Reserve to act on what we're seeing specifically there beyond your broader policy measures? So these are just small inputs in the broader financial sector and, you know, issues like GameStop, the, the things about that. That's really Treasury Secretary 
SEC, members of Congress who are on the committees that, that think about these issues, they're, they're looking at those types of things. When I think about financial stability and froth, I'm looking over a wide range of financial instruments. And that's when I conclude that right now we're resilient. And we were even resilient through GameStop. We have the, the checks and balances in place that while it didn't stop that run up, it certainly didn't uh, permeate the rest of the financial system. So from my vantage point, things are still in a good place, but always bears watching. Yeah, and something we are watching, and I know you feel incredibly passionately about this, the inequalities. This is not something that didn't exist pre-COVID. It just stopped us, I think, long enough to understand what was really going on. You wrote a blog recently, and some of these statistics were shocking. The loss in output as a result of inequalities in the US economy, $70 trillion over the last three decades, just over $2.5 trillion in 2019 alone. Mary, talk to us about this, because this recession is specific in terms of the pockets of society who it's impacted most. Well, these numbers are, are just staggering. You know, what we did in our research is simply say, what if we didn't have the gaps between blacks and whites, men and women, Hispanic and white individuals in our country? What would happen? And it showed that we were growing faster. We would have more output, a larger pie for everyone. And what this really highlights is that this is not just about fairness. Fairness is important, but it's not just about this. This is not a social issue. This is an economic issue. Closing these gaps, which are only going to grow over time, Closing these gaps is essential if we want to be globally competitive and deliver the next generation a better future than the one we inherited. You know, one of the ways it's being discussed, and it's a, a challenge once again in Congress, is perhaps lifting the minimum wage. The Congressional Budget Office put out a report saying if you raise the minimum wage to the talked about $15, it could cost 1.4 million jobs, even if it managed to lift 900,000 people out of poverty. Mary, where do you stand on minimum wage and maybe a living wage, an assessment of what the living wage is here, state by state if necessary? Sure. So this is a perennial debate whether we should use a minimum wage or something else to basically make work pay. The, the sad reality is, and this is something we do have to, to grapple with, we have to fix, is that many Americans work full time 40 hours a week or more, and they can't effectively feed their families, buy the homes they need, pay the rent they have to, and live productive and healthy, happy lives. And that's a miss. That's something we have to we have to fix. Whether it's the minimum wage or the earned income tax credit or another tool that we haven't yet tried, all of those things are things that Congress needs to grapple with. And when I think about the minimum wage, the living wage, you know, I live in, I work in a district, uh, the 12 western, uh, the nine western states rather, the 12th district, where living wages are very common. And, and what ultimately the decision of voters was, was simple. If I go to a restaurant and I'm sitting there having a meal, I want to know that the person who's serving my meal is paid enough that they don't have to stop at a food bank on their way home to feed their family. And that's just something that we're willing to take on. So costs are one thing, but people are another thing. And we really need to focus on getting this problem fixed. It's such a great illustration, a painful one, but an important one. What role does the Federal Reserve play in tackling this, Mary? Because there will be people watching this going, but the stimulative policy is fueling a rise in the inequality. And as we've discussed, there's no choice because you have to support those that are suffering most in the interim. But we have to come out of this and not forget and carry on. 
Absolutely. I think this is one of the things I'll underline. You said it well, is we cannot be forgetful. It's going to be so tempting as we get past COVID to think that if we're okay, everything's okay. But let's remember that many, many people in our communities, people who have disproportionately lost their jobs in low and moderate income communities or certain sectors, they really need to be made whole as well. We are all going to be better off if we work on this collectively and we bring everybody back to their pre-COVID levels and we allow people to even grow grow more and have lives and, 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 and families that thrive in their communities. So this has got to be a top priority. And ultimately, it's all about economics and the Federal Reserve is about making sure we have a healthy economy. So we're thinking about this, studying it, researching it, and working with our fiscal policymakers to be as informed as we possibly can be about how to make sure that our economy is an inclusive one. Yeah, we have to be human about it. Just because we're okay doesn't mean everyone is. Mary Daly, President and CEO of the San Francisco Federal Reserve. Great to chat to you, as always. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday, and we've got stocks hitting all-time highs once again after Tuesday's market pause. Coca-Cola and GM posting market-friendly earnings and their shares, well, a bit of mixed. GM lower, as you can see, in early trade, but Twitter, wow, look at that performance, rallying some 14% following their, their results. The uh, corporate news not stopping there either. Walmart announcing today it will begin administering COVID vaccines at 1,000 of its U.S. pharmacies in 22 states beginning Friday. Smoother vaccine rollouts continue to fuel optimism about reopenings too. Brent crude now up for a ninth straight session and sitting at highs not seen since before the pandemic, now above $61 a barrel. We've also got Fed Chair Jay Powell expected to speak more about the economic outlook and recovery in a speech to the New York Economic Club later on today too. Now, fourth quarter earnings at the shipping giant Maersk jumped a bumper 85 percent. The company says strong consumer demand in the second half of 2020 drove up freight rates. The world's biggest container shipping line says it expects to see trade recover further this year. Joining us now, Søren Sko. He's the CEO of Maersk. Søren, fantastic to have you on the show as always. Wow, is all I can say about those results. It was a fantastic quarter. Better than expected um, trade recovery, I think. And of course, restrictions on containers. Those freight rates truly soared in the quarter. They did. Uh, they did indeed. It, and it kind of, in a way, masks uh, the story for most because we actually had year-on-year earnings growth in every single quarter during uh, 2020. And in the first three quarters, we had lots of headwinds in terms of lower volumes. And then it all, if you will, came together in the fourth quarter and, and demand increased very much driven by the that by the U.S. market, where imports were up like 25 percent in the in the fourth quarter, so so very much a U.S. story that impacted the whole world. Yeah, I, was, I mean, I was looking at some of the charts here. The freight rates between China and Europe quadrupled, I think, in the final two months of, of 2020. I mean, everyone's complaining. Exporters are complaining. Regulators are complaining. I mean, I know you've had a number of investigations over the last what four, five years from a whole host of countries, and they've never found anything. Um, what is this just what happens in a crisis and does the, do these things improve this year? Well, I mean, the reality of the matter is that we are operating, you know, fixed uh, fixed uh, capacity networks. And, and what happened last year was that in the first half, actually volumes were significantly down from Maersk 
volumes were down 15% in the second quarter. And, and, and lots of our customers, retailers in particular, you know, during the th- second quarter of 2020 and way into the summer when, when nobody really knew where the pandemic was going, um, you know, they stopped buying in Asia or, 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 or lowered the buying a lot. And then, you know, come, come after summer, then suddenly the consumer is, is demanding product. Many companies finding themselves without enough goods on the shelves. And that, that boomed, uh, you know, a double whammy in the sense that there's strong basic demand from the consumers. And on top of that, you have an inventory, inventory restocking cycle going on. And, and that's why we, we see uh, such a massive demand in the, uh, in, the, in the fourth quarter. And obviously, as I said, in a fixed capacity network, it's really hard to deal with. It's, to your point as well, skewed the picture as far as the business is concerned. I know your broader ambition is to be effectively door to door. So to boost your land based logistics operations. And that is hoping to be around 50 percent of operating income by 2023. If I if I remember from our, our last discussion, the benefit of what you've seen is that you now have a multi-billion dollar acquisition war chest, let's call it that, should you need it. Talk to me about the broader plans. How are you going to achieve that logistics-based target and utilize some of that cash that you've gained? Well, certainly 2020 also brought uh, a lot of proof points to our strategy. I mean, our logistics business in in the fourth quarter grew 35% year on year, Mm. uh, which is not driven by freight rates. That's simply driven by more, more business. And most of that growth was actually organic. So, so, so we today have an $8 billion logistics business, uh, and, and we expect that to grow dramatically in the coming year, both organically and through acquisitions. We made a couple of good acquisitions last year, one of them in the U.S., a company called Performance Team, which is in the warehousing and distribution space, and that has turned out to be an excellent acquisition for us. And, and we expect to do more. I mean, we're leaving... We're leaving 2020 with almost no financial debt. So obviously, we have plenty of uh, firepower. I want to ask you, and I'm pausing as I ask you this, but I ask you because I remember from our discussion last time as well that you are utilizing blockchain technologies to facilitate your logistics operations and just understand where supplies are around the world. In light of the recent announcement from Tesla that they're putting some of their cash on the balance sheet into Bitcoin, I wonder whether you as a, as a company are even having this discussion and what you think of it, if anything. Uh, no, we're not having that uh, discussion. And I, frankly, I don't have any, any view on it. We, we have we have a, 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 a collaboration with, with IBM where we are building a, a global yes. uh, a Bitcoin-powered network to, 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 to create more visibility in, in global trade and to digitize uh, in particular documents. And, and uh, we have seen plenty of progress with that. We have brought all a lot of new uh, members to the ecosystem and, and we expect that, that network, which we call TradeLens, to really uh, grow in the, coming, uh, in the coming years. But no current ambitions to discuss with the board the prospect of investing in Bitcoin, just to be clear. No, no, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. we can be clear about that, yeah. Yeah, I can sense that. Okay, talk to me about the outlook. Talk to me about what you're seeing in terms of recovery, pick up in trade, operations in 2021. So in, in 2021, we are, we are guiding for a, a better year than and 2020, uh, which was a good year. 
and uh, and we are doing that because we uh, you know we're starting the, uh, the the year on a very strong note but we're also seeing if you will not just the ocean business but the the rest of our businesses really perform well and as as volumes we expect will come back this year uh, you know then then we we are we are we're confident we'll we'll see growing earnings i mean we we talk a lot about the fourth quarter and the explosion of in demand but but overall, for the full year of 2020, actually, global trade was down 2-3%. We were down 5% because of our, our exposure to, in particular, to Latin America and Africa. And, and we expect global trade to be back in growth mode this year, and, 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 and our businesses will, will benefit from that. Is there any part of the world that you're worried about or cautious about? Look, obviously, none of us have been in a pandemic before, and therefore, yeah. we have not really experienced coming out of it either. Um, I, I, so, so there's plenty of things to to think about and 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 worry about. It, it looks to me, however, that like the major economies of the world, EU, US, China, Japan, so on, have all done very sensible things to keep a hand under the economy and keep as many people in jobs as as, as possible. And and that's actually why we, from a from an economic point of view, have done fairly well through the pandemic. When we look at global economy, you have to remember, Maersk, we are only really uh, exposed to the goods economy. We're not really mm. exposed to the service economy. And it's it's really the service economy that is taking the brunt of the the, the, the force of the attack here because, you know, and, and if, in fact, we are probably benefiting from con- some consumers, you know, the money they cannot spend on going on holiday travel or going to a restaurant or going to a sports game. Some of that money gets channeled into more uh, goods consumption, which which we need to transport. So, 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 uh, but, you know, we're coming out of pandemic and, and that's going to be a new experience for all of us. Right now, things are looking good and we, are actually, we think we're going to have a bit, or we're quite confident we're going to have a better year uh, this year than last year. The question is how good. Yeah, well, I mean, you phrased it perfectly, I think. The goods part of the economy versus the services part of the economy and um, well managed, sir. Congratulations on those results. Sensku, the CEO of Maersk. We'll talk to you soon. All right, up next, Europe grapples with new COVID-19 variants and a vaccine shortage. Stay with us. The details are next. Welcome back to First Move and the latest now on the COVID crisis in Europe. England tightening border restrictions to curb the spread of COVID variants. Passengers entering from 33 high-risk countries will have to quarantine in hotels at their own cost. Any travellers caught lying on their arrival forms could face up to 10 years in prison. In Germany, meanwhile, leaders are currently meeting to discuss possibly easing lockdown measures. Chancellor Angela Merkel reportedly wants to keep restrictions in place until at least March. Meanwhile, in France, extending its health emergency until June. The crisis in Europe, complicated by the bloc's slow vaccine rollout, supply shortages have led to delays and an ugly political fight with the UK. Earlier, the president of the European Commission admitted that errors had been made. Today, in the fight against the virus, we're still not where we want to be. We were late to authorise. We were too optimistic when it came to massive production. And perhaps we were too confident that what we ordered would actually be delivered on time. Melissa Bell joins us now. Melissa, great to have you with us. It felt like a mere culpa. Uh, We messed up here and we simply didn't move quickly enough. That's right. This is the woman, after all, Julia, who's been under fire now for a couple of weeks over uh, this 
poor vaccine rollout. She went on to give uh, the figures, you know, 25% of those 100 million doses that had been promised by AstraZeneca uh, simply were all that is going to arrive in the first quarter for the European Union. Now, those AstraZeneca vaccines have begun being rolled out. Of course, Julia, in Italy uh, since yesterday, in France and Germany over the course of the weekend, but there simply aren't enough of them. And and she went on really to explain uh, the extent to which she believed that mistakes had been made, referring even to the announcement. You'll remember when the export bans were announced after the row began with AstraZeneca, the announcement by the European Union that they were going to reintroduce that hard border uh, at the Irish Republic. Now, that, she said, was something she regretted, speaking specifically to the idea that the EU would support peace uh, in Northern Ireland going forward. Uh, So, yes, really kind of setting out before European lawmakers uh, how uh, badly the European Union had dealt with this, and yet, Julia, going on to explain why it had been necessary to do so. Remember, in the beginning, this was not in the domain of the European Union. Health issues were handled by member states because the EU was failing to coordinate. Four countries, including France and Germany, had decided to bandy together to start to procure the vaccines. She explained that it simply wouldn't have been possible to let the biggest economies decide for the 27, hence the need to get together. But of course, she said it had been slow. Now she intends to streamline the process, uh, both of clinical trials and ultimately of vaccine delivery. But there is a lot of work to do. So far, Julia, she said only 26 million vaccines had been delivered to the European Union. She wants 70% of the EU's population to be vaccinated by the summer. And when you consider its size, uh, that's going to be a lot of vaccines uh, to uh, authorise and to procure and to distribute over the coming months. I saw a fascinating quote from her in the German press last week as well that said, a country on its own can be a speedboat. The EU is more like a tanker. You can tell uh, you can tell the Brits that as well. Um, I want to talk about some of the other examples here. Serbia, clearly not an EU member, but Hungary is. And they've turned to um, perhaps more controversial options. What's being made of that across Europe? And for particularly for those people who are saying, look, we want a vaccine and we want it sooner rather than later. That's right. The Hungarians going ahead and beginning to deliver this week the Sputnik vaccine that has yet to be approved by the European Medicines Agency. We understand that at some point a process will begin so that it can consider its application. But for now, it's not been approved. And I think uh, you put your finger on something a moment ago beyond uh, the frustration of some European member states uh, in deciding to go it alone on some of this vaccine procurement. Uh, the idea that things have gone so well in the United Kingdom in terms of their vaccine procurement and rollout and that countries like Serbia that are not yet in the European Union are doing so much better on their vaccine rollout than any European countries are. I think uh, that, of course, makes Ursula von der Leyen's situation even worse. Not only did she insist on the coordination of this vaccine procurement uh, last summer, but others who haven't had to be involved in that have done so much better, Julia. Yeah, I have to say it's uh, one of the very few things I talk about more than anything with uh, Brits I speak to, whether they be Remainers or Leavers in the Brexit debacle, quite frankly. Um, They point this out specifically. Melissa Bell, great to have you with us in a beautiful backdrop there. I admire it every time you're on with us. Thank you for that. Thank you. (laughs) All right, you're watching First Move. More to come. Dubai's Expo 2020 set to open in October after a one-year pandemic delay. In today's Road to Expo, John Defterius takes you to the Sustainability Pavilion.
With this space-like structure, the Sustainability Pavilion is set to be a major centerpiece of Expo 2020. At 130 meters wide, this huge roof canopy is called Terra, meaning planet Earth, and it's all about the future of the world around us. The roof and surrounding energy trees are fitted with more than 1,000 solar panels that will provide some of the energy needed to host this massive event. We are trying to showcase how humanity can build buildings that do live in harmony with the environment around them, that do manage to grab the resources around, whether that's sun or even water. Expo 2020 has been delayed a year because of the pandemic. This pavilion is the first to be completed and lucky residents and visitors are getting a glimpse inside this megastructure. Here they are brought on immersive and interactive experiences. A world full of forests, oceans, and the impact of overconsumption, all with the goal of helping visitors, particularly children, understand their impact on the environment. Through those immersive and interactive experiences, that's how we can really connect to people. That's how we can start conversations that matter rather than just giving information. Millions of visitors are expected to attend the event from this October to the end of March next year. Post-Expo, the pavilion will continue to inspire future generations and serve as an example of sustainable design with the building to become a science center in District 2020 new community that will evolve from the Expo site. Ever since we set out to plan for this pavilion, we had the future in mind, and we designed it to be a center for children and science that would remain after the Expo. It's going to continue inspiring the future generation about actions that they can take around the environment. Surrounded by other sustainable structures and thought-provoking displays, Terra's visitors are until the 10th of April being given a glimpse of what is to come during Expo 2020. And through the Sustainability Pavilion, imagine what our planet could and needs to look like in the future. John Defterius, CNN, Dubai. We end with a near catastrophic tale about Zoom filters. A lawyer in Texas was ready to appear at a virtual court proceeding, but his computer wasn't. Unable to fix his Zoom problem, Rod Ponton uttered a sentence that's probably never been heard in court before. Listen in. Can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but... Uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's, I'm here live. That's not, I'm not a cat. I'm not a cat. It was those eyes and the blinking. The judge, you'll be fortunate to, and pleased to know, helped fix the situation. He then posted on Twitter advising everyone to check their filters if a child has been using the computer. Don't blame your children. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.